Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Paul Paul Gowder um, about his book published last year by Hart called The Rule of Law in the United States, An Unfinished Project of Black Liberation. The book focuses on examining the ideals of American rules of law by asking how do we interpret its history and the goals of the constitutional framers to see the rule of law ambitions that the foundational institutions express. Specifically, it looks at the distinctive role of black liberation movements in developing American rule of law. It examines how American rule of law was thought about at the beginning, how it's been applied and interpreted at the various frontiers of the United States, and the various compromises and challenges uh, that are, in this book, most obviously expressed through the discussion on black liberation. So it's a really interesting book examining American law as it was thought of at the beginning, but also how it's evolved, changed, and been interpreted over the years since. So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Gowder. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I was wondering if you could introduce yourself a bit to our audience, um, how you came to write this book, how does it build on your previous work, um, how, why is this the book that you wrote? Sure. So I'd say it would be most interesting to listeners to have a little bit of context in the discussion around the American rule of law first. And so that discussion, in a lot of ways, it's really weird, really weird because it has almost a kind of bipolar quality to it. So on the one hand, there are sort of a lot of folks in the international development community, as well as conservative legal scholars and activists associated, for example, with organizations like the Federalist Society, who think of the United States as this kind of global paragon of the rule of law. You know, we see, um, and I discuss a bit in the conclusion, this, this sort of endless kind of, I don't even know what you would call it, right? Like sort of hagiographies of American legalism. You know, there was a period shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union where one of the running themes of this crowd was Soviets, or former Soviet, now Russians, showing up in the U.S. to learn how we do our legal system. And so it's a kind of America can do no wrong account. And then on the other side, there's the the American rule of law does not exist. It's, you know, really just a cover for race, class, gender domination, slash, you know, sort of, you call it the critical legal studies, almost nihilistic take on the notion that there is an American rule of law. And so what I really wanted to do was carve out something that can recognize both the hope and the genuine aspirations at the heart of American legal institutions, but also recognize that those institutions have never actually achieved those aspirations. And it turns out, just as a matter of intellectual history, that these ideas 
have been brought out I think, most vividly through a series of Black American activists and scholars. Like for me, there's a line of thought really beginning with Frederick Douglass and with a speech that Frederick Douglass gave in Glasgow when he was essentially in exile from the Fugitive Slave Act about the way that the Constitution could be turned into an abolitionist document. And running all the way through the 20th and 21st century, through James Baldwin, through um, many contemporary critical race theory scholars, most notably Patricia Williams, that identify that there's a sense in which the law represents a tool that can actually be used for this liberatory purpose. And so I really wanted to tell that story. That's a great way of introducing the book and sort of how you came to it. So thank you. Um, so can you tell us a bit about what you mean by rule of law? Because um, as you said, this is a term that does get thrown around a lot. Um, and yet, perhaps because there are so many different conceptions of who has good ones and who doesn't, um, it does seem like one of those terms where you think you know what it means until you actually sit down to define it. So how do you define it? Oh, I think that's absolutely true, that characterization. I mean, this is famously difficult. Um, it's not a coincidence that a number of scholars, you know, people like Jeremy Waldron, have suggested that the rule of law is an essentially contested concept. And so for this book, in a lot of ways, I really try not to define the concept of the rule of law. And the reason, well, part of the reason is just because there's a previous book, um, The Rule of Law in the Real World, published by Cambridge in 2016, where I made my effort to do the philosophy side of rule of law scholarship and so come up with a conception that to me seemed the best. But in this new book, methodologically, what I try to do is to proceed from something like the facts on the ground. And so what is it that activists who have seen themselves as trying to capture the values of freedom and equality at the heart of our legal system have understood themselves to be fighting for what is it that we claim in our documents and that those elites who have written and administered those documents over the centuries have claimed that the U.S. already achieves. And so to that extent, I think that we can effectively, as I would like to, the effectively stubbornly refuse to say the rule of law is X and say rather that the United States has understood itself to, depending on what side you're on, either achieve or aspire to a number of things that often get captured under this rule of law rubric. And so ideas like 
fair trials, um, ideas like individual freedom and independence from domination, where each person in the United States can genuinely stand tall in their relationships with others because each person is protected by law from the arbitrary power of other human beings. Right? Those are the ideas that I think the United States has always claimed to instantiate. And I think that, that um, the idea of looking at it from facts on the ground and what the people um, fighting for these things think they're fighting for uh, comes through really clearly in the book. And it's quite helpful as a way to understand the different debates and especially the stakes of the debates. Um, so going to one of the first debates that you look at, you argue quite powerfully that the US allowing slavery was directly contrary to the founders' conception of the country having rule of law. So can you explain for us a bit your argument around how slavery was inherently lawlessness? Absolutely. So one of the things that we see, and this is something if you read, you know, classic works on the history of slavery, like Orlando Patterson's work, what you find is that you know, every slave state, and this includes the U.S., operates by denying legal and social personality to the enslaved, right? Like that's just part of what it means to be slavery. And in the course of, you know, the, the reason that slave societies, including the early United States, deny legal and social personality to the enslaved is because the very idea of a person who is owned by another human being requires that the one who is the owner have substantially unconstrained power over the one who is owned. Now, I say substantially unconstrained, you know, of course, on the ground in various slave societies, again, including the U.S., there have been some constraints, Right, you know, we see um, Mark Tushnet has a book that really examines a lot of the cases surrounding slavery. And we do see some kinds of constraints on things like masters killing their slaves. Sometimes we do see occasions where slaves are allowed to show up in court and, for example, claim self-defense when they fight back against, you know, various kinds of abuse. But on the whole, the overwhelming theme of slavery is that of arbitrary power. It's that masters in the first instance and secondarily all whites have the authorization by law to essentially do any kinds of physical violence that they want to the slave. And the reason is because the only way that the slave system works is if slaves know that they have nowhere to turn except to their master and, you know, except to the sort of mercy of their master for any kind of protection, safety, or, you know, really any, anything at all. This, this level of complete dependence is built into the system. And so you then 
linked this idea of lawlessness around slavery and described how the solution, according to the founders, was linking slavery into property and trying to kind of avoid some of these problems by just going, no, 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 it's all property, it's fine. Um, And so I was wondering if you could explain that for us in terms of how well that logic worked um, and then what kind of impact it had to sort of distort the idea of property by adding humans to the mix. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So if you think about it, the thing about slavery and about the lawlessness of slavery that I just described is it was radically contrary to everything else that the founding generation said about how they were running their society. And we can really see, you know, we have appeals to ideas like, you know, equality under law and nobody being a judge in their own case and so forth, running through the literature of the founding period through the revolution. And then once we get slavery, right, the, um, they, sort of seem to forget those ideas. You know, my favorite example is the Fugitive Slave Act cooked up the, the the second Fugitive Slave Act, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 cooked up these kangaroo courts basically run by, you know, a version of sort of justices of the peace that were used to adjudicate the claims of slaveholders or slave catchers that a person who they caught in the North was allegedly an escaped slave. And it was so corrupt that, I kid you not, the statute provided that these so-called judges would be paid twice as much for ruling in favor of the slave status of the person caught as they would if they ruled that the person caught wasn't a slave, right? Like it's not even blatant. I mean, well, it's not even subtle. And, you know, it's striking that this almost exactly parallels a number of the like really serious critiques by people like John Adams himself about the vice admiralty courts that were used by colonial Britain to impose taxes on the colonists. And so there's just, you know, sort of a seemingly no awareness of the contradiction in these positions. And so I argue that the reason that there's no awareness is because one of the core ideas that has long been associated in the Anglo-American tradition, well, in the Anglo-American tradition, with the rule of law has been the protection of private property interests against expropriation by the government. And so what we see, and this is replete in the literature by the defenders of slavery against abolitionists and against free soilers and against basically anybody who resisted not even the existence of slavery, but its expansion, is we see the consistent claim that by barring slavery in the territories, by northern states trying to protect the, the, the integrity of their own legal systems, by not assisting slave catchers coming in from the south, so on and so forth, that what the government was trying to do was trying to expropriate the property of slaveholders. And so by assimilating slavery to other kinds of 
property, the slaveholders could raise their own rule of law challenge to efforts to protect the legal interests of the, or to create legal interests for the enslaved. And we see this even in kind of foundational pro-slavery documents. So one of my favorite examples is the Lecompton Constitution of Kansas, which is the constitution written by enslavers as part of the effectively like sort of low-grade civil war in Kansas, known to historians as bloody Kansas, over whether or not slavery would expand into that territory, um, you know, leads off declaring that slavery is just like all other kinds of property. And because it's just like all other kinds of property, it's prior to and really the foundation of the Constitution itself, and hence cannot be set aside by the state. And so that's the idea that the slaveholders just repeat over and over and over again, you know, taking away my arbitrary power over these human beings is taking away my property. And, you know, the rule of law means anything. It means not taking away property. Now, this is actually totally consistent with long-standing conceptions of the role of property, as I said, in this Anglo-American tradition. One of the ideas that intellectual historians of that tradition have identified is that one of the dominant themes of this period, going back to, you know, a couple centuries beforehand in England, was this kind of republicanism, according to which property holding was both marker and sort of key attribute of independent responsible citizenship. And so the protection of property was sort of already seen as a key way that the protections of law needed to be instantiated in the new government. And so it's really, it's not so much that the use of that to protect slavery affected the concept of property going forward, so much as the fact that the American rule of law and the American conception of citizenship started out so property-centered had this kind of inherent weakness to it that permitted it to be abused in the cause of enslavement. Interesting. And so let if we're on the subject of slavery and the idea of property and anger around you can't take these rights away, who was taking away these rights, right? And this, this comes to the idea um, that threads through so much of your book of the importance of the Black American struggle for inclusion in this law. And this is where, in some cases, the property owners, the slave owners, felt the threat was coming from. Um, so I'm wondering if you can sort of talk to us a bit about that. Well, why is the Black struggle for liberation to you the key driver 
in building more of a foundation of U.S. rule of law? Yeah, so there are so many reasons for that. Um, I feel like you know, it's, it's almost like we could just do the whole podcast talking about this one question, right? Because part of the issue here is just a matter of simple neglect, both within our conversations about history and within our law, right? In terms of the history, I mean, I think fortunately in recent years, people have started to go back to really to Du Bois, right? So you know, the way that I think of it, like Fona sort of was the person who read Du Bois and thought, hey, wait a minute, this guy was onto something. And since then, historians have started to realize and to make really clear that Black Americans are owed a substantial amount of credit for the development of American legal fidelity such as it is. And I don't think, though, that that idea has really taken adequate root yet in our law. And so the example that I give, and this is an old example, but it, you know, it illustrates the kind of neglect that um, the legal system has played for, has, has given for a very long time to the role of how black folks who are actually struggling for their own liberation have thought about the Constitution and the American rule of law. So there's this old case, um, the civil rights cases uh, at the end of the 19th century, worst named case in the history of our jurisprudence, because essentially what it does is it denies civil rights. And this is a case where the Supreme Court says that Congress cannot attack private economic discrimination under the 14th Amendment, under the powers conferred to them by the 13th and 14th Amendments. And one of the passages, and I quote this in the book, because it just like blows my mind in this case, as the court says, oh, you know, nobody thought when like there were lots of free black people in the north and they were subject to all kinds of economic discrimination and nobody thought that that economic discrimination had anything to do with slavery and <laughs> i mean it's just this mind-blowing passage because you can tell that the justice who wrote that opinion had never read anything written by a black because actually it turns out we have this immense literature suggesting that, you know, black abolitionists absolutely recognized that economic discrimination was part and parcel of the same kind of social institution of slavery, that the abolitionist movement needed to also work on achieving economic emancipation, even for free Black Americans in the North in order to make it possible to genuinely experience freedom and equal citizenship. I mean, this is an incredibly consistent theme in what Black activists were saying at the time. And so the court just like doesn't attend to that because for the court, you know, the the, the relevant 
public that thought about what the Constitution meant was apparently you know, consisted of white people. And you know, I think that throughout the course of American constitutional interpretation, we can see the effects of this mistake. And if we actually look at how black activists who have been struggling for their freedom throughout not just abolition, but then through the anti-lynching movement, the civil rights movement, and the contemporary movement for black lives, understand what the Constitution commands, then we can get a very different reading on how exactly we as, you know, American lawyers are obliged to organize our society. And it's one that's legitimate and valid, right? I mean, you know, we think that, you know, everybody who interprets the U.S. Constitution thinks that it has something to do with the understanding of the people. You know, originalists think that it has to have something to do with the understanding of what the words in the Constitution were by the people who were around at the time the Constitution is written. Well, you know, surprise, surprise, there were a lot of black people who were around both at the time the original Constitution was written and then absolutely at the time that the 13th, 14th Amendments were written. Um, similarly, you know, living Constitution scholars, which is a pejorative term invented by the right, but, you know, we can run with it, um, think that the social understanding of people today bears on how we ought to interpret the text of our constitution. Well, again, surprise, surprise, there are a lot of black people. What happens when we take the social understandings of black people seriously as part of how we interpret the constitution and how we interpret the rule of law ideals that the constitution is meant to impart, or at least can be interpreted charitably to mean to Create. And so I think oh, by focusing on the way that our existing rule of law protections, such as they are, are in fact attributable in large part to the self-liberation struggles of Black Americans, it gives us, I think, a prod to say, hey, wait a minute we need to actually be attending to how the folks who have achieved these great strides have understood what they were fighting for. And so one of the examples, I think, to speak to exactly your point of it depends on who's in the room when these things are written down um, and depends on whose opinions get taken into account was your discussion around the Equal Protection Clause Um, and how it was interpreted when it was written, how it generally is interpreted now. Um, But one of the most interesting things I found in this piece was your examination of how this particular clause could have been interpreted differently and what that would have meant later on. So could you explain to us a little bit about how, using this example of the Equal Protection Clause, what could a different understanding of protection been And what kind of implications would that have had generally for the 14th Amendment, the 13th Amendment, etc., when it comes to 
bringing different perspectives in than were initially allowed to be included. Absolutely. So one of the, no, it's not completely contemporary because he passed away a few years ago, but, you know, one of the modern scholars who has really influenced me in this respect is Derek Bell. And so Derek Bell was one of the founders of critical race theory. And one of the things, but this is the story of Derek Bell is that he was a civil rights lawyer um, in the sort of great civil rights era before he became a law professor. And he, over the years, really became disillusioned with how the strategy of the civil rights era played out. I mean, it turns out that, for example, things like school desegregation, you know, Brown versus Board of Education was a great achievement. Yes, but Brown versus Board of Education didn't really work that well on the ground. We still have, to this day, a huge number of schools that are basically single-race schools because of things like residential segregation. And so one of the things that Bell said that really struck me was what we actually missed was not the sort of the, the obligation of formal legal equality under the Equal Protection Clause, but real political power. And here's the thing about real political power. Especially in the South, there were a lot of Black folks in the South. And it turns out that during Reconstruction, a lot of Black folks in the South actually did have real political power. What happened? Well, what happened is, you know, what's known again to historians as the quote-unquote redemption period. Um, It ought to be better known as the coup d'etat period, because what happened is that a bunch of essentially paramilitary groups engaged in violent coups in the South. And so, you know, the... Um, a bunch of organizations. We can sort of assimilate them to the Klan. I mean, that's a little bit ahistorical, but let's run with it. Um, so just, you know, essentially say the Klan um, used violence and terror across the South to keep Black people from voting, to, in many cases, chase out Black office holders who were legitimately won elections during the Reconstruction period. And then once they seized control of the machinery of the state, that's when they turned around and passed all the discriminatory laws, you know, the poll taxes and the literacy tests and all the rest of that stuff that entrenched their cold overpower in law for a century thereafter. And so how does this happen? Well, if we look at the text of the Equal Protection Clause, right, that today we don't actually really pay a lot of attention to the word protection in it. Some scholars do. But for the most part, what the courts have done with it is the courts have interpreted it as an equal law clause and hence interpreted it as essentially prohibiting discrimination, you know, prohibiting 
like the laws that treat people of one race differently from people of another race. But if we actually think about it as obliging the government to use the law to protect people, then it seems to be a way to tell the story of what the constitutional violation was that permitted the Redeemer coup in the first place, that neither the states nor the federal government, I mean, the federal government really was the one who should have stepped in. And although the federal government isn't covered by the Equal Protection Clause, still captures the core idea that, you know, Congress using its powers under the 14th Amendment ought to have and ought to have been allowed by the Supreme Court, which it wasn't, to use the power of the United States to achieve protection of black political power by law. I think, you know, Derek Bell has at least partly convinced me that had that occurred, you know, we wouldn't have needed Brown versus Board of Education. You know, Brown versus Board of Education, as great as it was, was fundamentally a second, you know, sort of a consolation prize that where the courts had to step in to achieve minimal formal legal equality for people who had been denied violently as a consequence of the lack of legal protections, genuine political power. And so besides Brown versus Board of Education, what can you just further expand on kind of what the impact would be of this sort of thing? Well, I think another place where we can... Oh, well, oh, so, so it's interesting that, that I think to some extent the further impacts of this idea are partly speculative, right, because we've never had that interpretation of the Constitution in our law. But a place that immediately comes to mind is the contemporary movement for Black lives, right? So one of the tensions surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement is a kind of debate between, on the one hand, you know, or even like broader, right, like there's a, you know, sort of police and prison abolition movement, which is really led not entirely, but substantially by Black Americans. And I think about Angela Davis as the great paragon of the modern day abolition movement. Right, and so, you know, against police and prison abolitionists and against the sort of broader movement, contemporary movement against police abuse of black and brown people more generally, what you often hear, especially from the sort of sophisticated conservatives, as well as sort of, you know, liberals who are a little uncertain about what to think about this is, hey, wait a minute, like the police 
also have a role in protecting black communities. And in fact, a lot of the history, um, James Foreman has a great book, Locking Up Our Own, that gives this history of the expansion of policing and of the sort of discretion of police in black communities is something that was asked for by community leaders from within the black community. Um, and so there's this great tension between, on the one hand, like it's clear that the police and the kind of arbitrary power that the police have in black communities does immense amounts of harm. But it's also clear that a lot of the consequences of things like segregation, discrimination, and concentrated poverty in subordinated black communities in the US play out in vulnerability to crime and that policing is a thing that you know is sort of one of the key pieces in the toolkit that people draw on to try to remediate vulnerability to crime and so thinking at least to my mind and this is all very speculative again because we've never been there but thinking about the constitutional obligation of equal protection as entailing an obligation of both protection by and protection from the police seems to me to be a way that we might start capturing the demands of movements like the movements for black lives and making sense of them within our law. What would it mean to say that there's a right both to be protected from crime and to be protected from policing? How would we have to reconfigure our criminal justice system if we understood the constitutional baseline to include that right? I'm not sure, but I think it has potential. It's certainly a very interesting uh, strand of thought to go down. And it really kind of encapsulates, I think, a lot of what the book does, which is draw out these ideas of tension. Um, And in some cases, it it seems like um, part of the idea of excavating what does currently happen, and in some ways to clarify this idea of what is rule of law and why is it very confusing because the philosophical and the practical seem to be so different um it clarifies the idea that actually some of what we the work we might need to do is around asking questions about tensions and paradoxes uh, rather than jumping straight necessarily to the answer but i am going to put you on the spot and ask you for an answer because you do state that the book aims to quote draw out the paradoxes embedded in the american rule of law How have our claims to lawful government carried within them both the ambition to genuinely deliver equal justice under law and the seeds of lawlessness and terror? So what is your answer? In brief, what did you conclude in terms of understanding this paradox? (laughs) What is my answer in brief? What a question, right? Um, (laughs) I think that for me... There are a few key things. Um, Number one, the property rights thing, Um, the property rights thing, the centrality of property within the American conception of the rule of law 
is a big source of the trouble, but potentially also, right? And you say, what did I conclude? Well, I concluded a bunch of paradoxes, right? So a big source of the trouble, but also a big potential source of liberation, right? So it turns out that activists have done a very good job, historically speaking, in saying, okay, you think that what the American rule of law is really about is protecting property rights? Fine, give me some property rights. No, so we see this first in the movement for land redistribution after the Civil War, right? This is where the famous 40 acres and a mule idea comes from. I mean, that didn't succeed, but we saw activists realizing, hey, wait a minute, both political as well as legal citizenship in this crazy country depends on property rights. So you know what? We need some property. And then only then will we have full political and legal citizenship. Um, to, you know, more recently, I think the welfare rights movement in the 20th century represented the same kind of idea, right? One of the great successful Supreme Court victories of this movement was the case of Goldberg versus Kelly, which made it clear that we have to understand welfare benefits as a kind of property right, and hence give the recipients of those benefits due process protections before arbitrarily taking them away. And that strategy is really the same as the 40 acres and a mule strategy. It's okay if you're going to insist on running a, 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 a system with a conception of what makes somebody entitled to legal protections that focuses on property, then you either need to give us property or you need to take what we already have and start calling it property because that's the only way we're going to get to genuine legal equality. And so to my mind, I think that strategy can continue. And it feeds into ideas like the reparations movement, right? Like one argument that we might give for reparations is it's not just about sort of paying the descendants of the enslaved as a kind of justice for what happened with slavery. Rather, it's a way to provide a kind of economic stake in the legal system that's necessary in order to, even today, provide access to full like legal protections. You know, even today, so many of our legal protections turn on whether or not somebody is a property holder. You know, the government has a record of doing things like using people's landlords as a proxy for law enforcement, for example, you know, things that can only be done to non-property holders. I think that's one big conclusion, is that the property thing, you know, one way or another, we need to sort the property thing out. Either we need a rule of law conception that doesn't revolve around property, or we need to have the status of property holding be radically expanded. Um, I think another really 
big conclusion. I mean, it's sort of a premise, but it's a premise that I think, you know, I, 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 it's one of those premises where at the beginning of the book, you think, I'm not sure if I agree with this. And at the end, either of writing it or hopefully of reading it, um, you find that you do agree with it more, you, you become more certain you, that you agree with it, is this idea of the kind of, ah, the what I, I think of sometimes is the capacity of the law for internal critique, right? The notion that to the extent there is a development story of the American rule of law, as well as to the extent we evaluate the U.S. as a sort of contemporary state that satisfies the rule of law, that story and that claim are going to be necessarily aspirational. To say America is a rule of law state is neither it's not to make some sort of false claim that, you know, it's to, to be refuted by appropriate critical analysis, nor is it to actually insist, yeah, American institutions are great. Rather, it's to capture a kind of constructive interpretation of American institutions and their development, according to which, if we took things seriously, if we took its aspirations and its history seriously, we could get closer to the achievement of rule of law ideals. I I do I think that does kind of come through towards the end as um it, it definitely is the book is set up at the beginning of this idea of kind of is it one or the other is it all a complete sham or is it a miracle um and i think the book does a good job of showing that the picture is a lot more complicated than that initial paradox um so one thing you've you've already mentioned a few of them of this particular case or this judgment i can't believe the judge wrote and i certainly found reading it that there were um, sort of particular pieces, the details every so often really jumped out at me of, wow, okay, that's a surprise. I wasn't expecting that, or I didn't know that. Um, so I was wondering if there's sort of one particular thing that comes to mind that was really surprising that you discovered um, in the course of writing this book. Oh, gosh, yeah. Now, so, you know, for the listeners, um, you know, she sends me these questions ahead of time. And I, I, I and I remember struggling a bit thinking about the surprising thing, partly because there were so many surprises. Um, I think for me, honestly, this, this, this is like maybe relatively small, but uh, sort of not completely surprising, but... Like it was something that really struck me and sort of became a really core part of the theme for the the whole project when when I turned it up. Right, so I, I I had the thought in my head beforehand that we needed to pay more attention to the Black Panthers. Um, you know, I wrote an article um, in the course of starting this book um, that I published in 2019 that discussed the Black Panthers a little bit and the way there was a a quote um, from a history of the Panthers that I'd seen beforehand about carrying law books in addition to guns 
that had just struck me then. And so when I would sort of started on this book proper, um, investigating the Panthers was one of the, the, the things that I had in my head. But I remember just being completely struck by how sort of deeply interwoven and really effective appeals to law turn out to be in how the Panthers organized and how the Panthers actually sort of disrupted what we can think of as the hegemony of white law. And so in the book, I particularly focus on the story that Bobby Seale gives. Um, Bobby Seale is one of the founders of the Panthers of a, a confrontation between Huey Newton and the police. So, you know, Huey's driving down the road and, you know, being Huey Newton, he's got a car full of guns because Panthers, guns, that's how it goes. The police stop him. The police, you know, demand to, like, inspect the guns and search the car and so on and so forth. And Huey Newton, being Huey Newton, says, you know, no. Um, And now, in addition to sort of obviously standing on, like, the guns, right, Huey stands on his constitutional rights. And the way that Bobby Steele tells the story is like the, the cops, I mean, it just confounds them. Um, a couple of lines that the cops just keep repeating. One of them is, who do you think you are? And the other is, you're just turning the Constitution around. And so it reveals how these kinds of claims, you know, to have constitutional rights were so disruptive to how the police operated and what the police assumed that they have said that the police had, you know, clearly understood the constitution as a thing that was a tool for them and for people like them. And the sort of effectiveness in terms of subversion and also in terms of building solidarity with the broader community, like Steele sort of concludes with how this incident was really a recruiting event for the Panthers, um, right? Like the just the like power of the mere act of claiming constitutional rights in the face of a legal system that says that you have them, but a society that says that you don't, really just like, again, like it became sort of the theme of the whole book. I mean, I, I chose you know, the cover of this book is a little bit provocative, perhaps. It's um, Elizabeth Kent. Leo Hart uses existing fine art for the covers. And I asked them to use Elizabeth Catlett's homage to the Panthers, which is um, is this sort of like a screen printing kind of a thing. I think it's called screen printing. I know little about art, um, but like basically images of Panthers, of black power fists, and at the bottom of a really big gun, right? And like the reason that I chose this image was because, you know, I think one of the things that I try to do as a result of just like being really struck by that story is raise and then unsettle the idea that even the Panthers are sort of famously the most like confrontational, like anarchic, 
side of the Black Power movement, like sort of like unsettled the notion that the Panthers were somehow in opposition to law. Adir try to show that even the Panthers were really just filled with law and that law was such an essential tool for their side of the liberation movement. I'm I'm glad you picked that in a way because that was definitely one of the examples that stuck most with me after reading the book. Um, particularly not just the part of, wait, you're turning the constitution around as if that was, I mean, it really was, it was an accusation by the police. How dare you? Um, but also the idea of um, him kind of looking around at all the younger people who had come out to see what was happening and sort of, if I remember correctly, sort of saying to them like, yeah, it's about guns, but it's also about the constitution. You know, you have the gun and you have the book. Um, and that those that, that they were equal in his conception of tools to fight oppression. Um, I found that a really, really interesting example of the idea of black liberation pushing for rule of law, um, despite the sort of narrative or conception of the police being how rule of law is conceived of. And um, a cheeky addition, perhaps, is um, I interviewed another author, and the episode will be coming out uh, in a few days. So if you're listening to this uh, by the time you'll you listen to this, it will already be out. Um, but interestingly, if you're on this idea of sort of a thing that's on paper, writes on paper, but not in reality, is true also in China's constitution. Um, so by the time this one comes out, you'll be able to listen to that episode about a book called Useful Bullshit, Constitutions in Chinese Politics and Society. And the idea of that gap between what's really there in practice versus what's written down, I think tells us a lot about how everyday people actually conceive of law. And it takes this argument around rule of law out of pure philosophy, out of something that maybe isn't doesn't seem accessible to everyone, um, and yet makes it quite real and practical. And I think your book does a really good job of making this discussion quite immediate. Um, it's not just history, to those who don't like history, I think everything's great in history. Um, but it's a helpful way to sort of link what could seem very philosophical to something more tangible. Um, so this sounds like perhaps an unfair question, given that this is obviously a large book and you've just recently published it. Um, but to finish up, what are you working on now or next? <laughs> it's actually... I mean, it's, it's less an unfair question and more I made unfair choices to myself because I did the incredibly stupid thing of signing two book contracts at once. Um, knowing, well, not knowing, um, I mean, knowing at somewhere level in the back of my head, but not fully internalizing that one really needs a kind of crash after one book before one does the next and so I have um, it's currently about six months delayed and hopefully it won't be too much further delayed another book project going on um, that book project is um, it's, it's a very very different idea um, it's about social media and sort of broader platform governance and the idea essentially is, you know, I hate this sort of trope in academic papers of having titles like 
taking X seriously or going on about taking things seriously, but it really is like taking the governance in the notion of platform governance seriously and in doing so drawing on you know it turns out that we have millennia of literature by political scientists i say millennia because i count aristotle as the first one um so we have aristotle onward of political scientists trying to figure out what kinds of things what kinds of institutions make for effective governance. And when people talk about platform governance and talk about platforms as governors, nobody actually draws on that, you know, those millennia of political scientists. And so my next book is going to be my effort to do just that. To say, you know, here is an institutional political theorist's take on how we do internet platform governance. All right. Well, definitely not hugely related to this book, um, but definitely, I think, quite interesting as well. So best of luck with that second immediate book project, which does sound a little bit terrifying to me to do two books in a row, but I'm sure you will handle it. Um, And In the meantime, uh, listeners can read your current book. Again, the title is The Rule of Law in the United States, An Unfinished Project of Black Liberation, which came out last year from Hart. Um, Thank you, Dr. Paul Gowder, for the interview today. Thank you so much. Um, Footnote, by the way, the book is also available in open access form. And so you can read it on um, the Hart Bloomsbury website. You can download a PDF. Um, So you have no excuse not to read it. Thank you for that. I'm sure that will be much appreciated by the readers.